Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to episode 25 of Stories of Your and Yours. We are at the quarter century mark. My name is Sean Ennis, and together we will hitch a ride on the nearest dark pathway to take us, well, who knows where. Let's start this episode the way we always do, with an iTunes review. Most Enjoyable by R. Lorraine R. I greatly enjoy the story selections. Both content and delivery provide a great way to relax and escape. Well done. Well, thanks so much to R. Lorraine R. for the kind words on iTunes Canada. And I always appreciate the time taken to leave a review. And speaking of iTunes stores outside of my home base of the United States, I just found out recently that we've got some listeners in Slovenia. So to everybody listening in Slovenia, I give you a hearty zdravo. The show has reviews in Canada and New Zealand now, in addition to the U.S., so I'm just saying, Slovenia, you know what to do. Moving on. Since you're here, I know you enjoy a good story, and maybe even the story behind the story. As such, I've got another show you should be aware of. It's called Folklore on the Rocks, and it's this week's podcast partner. Hi there, I'm Logan. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the new podcast, Folklore on the Rocks, where we talk about folklore and lesser-known creatures, cryptids, and monsters from around the world. When we say lesser-known, we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like Bigfoot or Nessie or Chupacabra, just because they're discussed so often. And the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from. Every two weeks, we'll be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature and getting a bit tipsy as we do so. But don't worry, we do our research sober. (laughs) On the weeks in between, we'll be narrating and discussing folktales. So some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from. And some will be more like modern folklore, like no sleeps and creepypastas. You can find out more about us on our website, folkloreontherocks.com on Facebook and Instagram, at Folklore on the Rocks, and Twitter at, at Folklore Rocks! So come on, grab a drink, join us, and let's dig deep together. Well, now that you've heard from Lindsay and Logan and their lesser-known cryptids, let's get to this week's episode. I've got another two stories for you this week, and the first one is going to be a pretty quick introduction. I stumbled upon this story a few months back and figured it'd be a good one for Halloween, It's called The Pale Man by Julius Long. There's not a lot of information out there about Julius Long. I know he lived from 1907 to 1955, and he worked as a lawyer based in Ohio, and that's pretty much it. From the looks of things, writing was kind of his side hustle, and this story, The Pale Man, was published in Weird Tales in September of 1934. We talked about the history of Weird Tales in episode number 13, featuring the story Far Below, So if you haven't gotten to that episode yet, it is readily available in the same place you found this one. Our second story today is The Phantom Coach by Amelia Edwards. Amelia B. Edwards lived from 1831 to 1892 and was an Egyptologist in addition to being an author. Edwards showed a talent for writing early in life, and she published her first poem at the age of seven and a short story at the age of twelve. Edwards actually pursued music in her younger years until a bout with typhus made it difficult for her to sing at which point she pivoted to writing, and she had some success there. Her first novel was called My Brother's Wife, and was published in 1855. She became fascinated with Egypt upon traveling there in 1873, and she published a record of her travels in 1877 called A Thousand Miles Up the Nile. She also added illustrations to that volume, as she was a talented illustrator. 
This was about the time when she began to transition from writing fiction to researching and writing about Egypt, which she did for the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, for you kids out there, there used to be these things called encyclopedias that were composed of like 25, 30, or more books, usually one or more books per letter of the alphabet. And they came out more frequently than anyone could afford to update them. I'm not sure exactly how frequently, but in my experience anyway, we had one set of an encyclopedia, and I can't remember which one it was, but once it was outdated, we pretty much went to the library to do research in the updated encyclopedias for the things we knew had changed since the publication of the one we had in the house. Of course, Wikipedia, as you know, is just a wiki encyclopedia, or an encyclopedia that accepts contributions from users. And that's it for today's edition of Sean is Old. Anyway, The Phantom Coach was first published in 1864 in a weekly periodical called All the Year Round, which was founded and owned by Charles Dickens. All the Year Round ran from 1859 to 1870 with Dickens as the editor. When he died in 1870, he left the magazine to his son Charles Dickens Jr., who ran it until 1895. The most prominent contributor to the publication was Dickens himself. His novel A Tale of Two Cities was published in installments, starting with the first issue of All the Year Round, which led to the periodical being an immediate success. Dickens also published Great Expectations here. Other contributors included Wilkie Collins, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, and Elizabeth Gaskell. The title of the periodical was derived from Shakespeare's Othello. The quote was, The story of our lives from year to year, which was printed above the title all the year round. The Phantom Coach is the most well-known of Amelia Edwards' works and has been anthologized several times over in volumes of Victorian ghost stories. And now, it's here on this show. So, now you know a little bit more about the authors and their stories, so let's move on to today's presentation. The Pale Man by Julius Long I have not yet met the man in number 212. I do not even know his name. He never patronizes the hotel restaurant, and he does not use the lobby. On the three occasions when we passed each other by, we did not speak, although we nodded in a semi-cordial, non-committal way. I should like very much to make his acquaintance. It is lonesome in this dreary place. With the exception of the aged lady down the corridor, the only permanent guests are the man in 212 and myself. However, I should not complain, for this utter quiet is precisely what the doctor prescribed. I wonder if the man in 212-2 has come here for a rest. He is so very pale. Yet, I cannot believe that he is ill, for his paleness is not of a sickly cast, but rather wholesome in its ivory clarity. His carriage is that of a man enjoying the best of health. He is tall and straight. He walks erectly, and with a brisk, athletic stride. His pallor is no doubt congenital, else he would quickly tan under this burning summer sun. He must have traveled here by auto, for he certainly was not a passenger on the train that brought me, and he checked in only a short time after my arrival. I had briefly rested in my room and was walking down the stairs when I encountered him, ascending with his bag. It is odd that our venerable bellboy did not show him to his room. It's odd, too, that with so many vacant rooms in the hotel, he should have chosen number 212 at the extreme rear. The building is a long, narrow affair, three stories high. The rooms are all on the east side, as the west wall is flush with a decrepit business building. The corridor is long and drab, and its stiff, bloated paper exudes a musty, unpleasant odor. The feeble electric bulbs that light it shine dimly as from a tomb. 
Revolted by this corridor, I insisted vigorously on being given number 201, which is at the front, and blessed with southern exposure. The room clerk, a disagreeable fellow with a Hitler mustache, was very reluctant to let me have it, as it is ordinarily reserved for his more profitable, transient trade. I fear my stubborn insistence has made him an enemy. If only I had been as self-assertive thirty years ago, <laughs> I should now be a full-fledged professor instead of a broken-down assistant. I still smart from the cavalier manner in which the president of the university summarily recommended my vacation. No doubt he acted for my best interests. The people who have dominated my poor life invariably have. Oh well. The summer's rest will probably do me a considerable good. It is pleasant to be away from the university. There is something positively gratifying about the absence of a graduate student face. <laughs> if only it were not so lonely. I must devise a way of meeting the pale man in 212. Perhaps the room clerk can arrange matters. I've been here exactly a week, and if there is a friendly soul in this miserable little town, he has escaped my notice. Although the tradespeople accept my money with flattering eagerness, they studiously avoid even the most casual conversation. I am afraid I can never cultivate their society unless I can arrange to have my ancestors recognized as local residents for the last 150 years. Now, despite the coolness of my reception, I have been frequently venturing abroad. In the back of my mind, I have cherished hopes that I might encounter the pale man in number 211. Incidentally, I wonder why he has moved from number 212. There's certainly little advantage in coming only one room nearer to the front. I noticed the change yesterday when I saw him coming out of his new room. We nodded again, and this time I thought I detected a certain malign satisfaction in his somber black eyes. He must know that I am eager to make his acquaintance, yet his manner forbids overtures. If he wants me to go all the way, he can go to the devil. I am not the sort to run after anybody. Indeed, the surly diffidence of the room clerk has been enough to prevent me from questioning him about this mysterious guest. I wonder where the pale man takes his meals. I've been absenting myself from the hotel restaurant and patronizing the restaurants outside. At each, I have ventured inquiries about the man in number 210. No one at any restaurant remembered him having been there. Perhaps he has entree into the Brahmin homes of this town. And again, he may have found a boarding house. I shall have to learn if there be one. The pale man must be difficult to please, for he has again changed his room. I am baffled by his conduct. If he is so desirous of locating himself more conveniently in the hotel, why does he not move to number 202, which is the nearest available room to the front? Perhaps I can make his inability to locate himself permanently an excuse for starting a conversation. I see we are closer neighbors now, I might casually say, but that is too banal. I must await a better opportunity. He's done it again. He is now occupying number 209. I am intrigued by his little game. I waste hours trying to fathom its point. What possible motive could he have? I should think he would get on the hotel people's nerves. I wonder what our combination bellhop chambermaid thinks of having to prepare four rooms for a single guest. If he were not stone deaf, I would ask him. At present, I feel too exhausted to attempt such an enervating conversation. I am tremendously interested in the pale man's next move. 
he must either skip a room or remain where he is, for a permanent guest, a very old lady, occupies number 208. She has not budged from her room since I have been here, and I imagine that she does not intend to. I wonder what the pale man will do. <laughs> I await his decision with the nervous excitement of a devotee of the track on the eve of a big race. After all, I have so little diversion. Well, the mysterious guest was not forced to remain where he was, nor did he have to skip a room. The lady in number 208 simplified matters by conveniently dying. No one knows the cause of her death, but it is generally attributed to old age. She was buried this morning. I was among the curious few who attended her funeral. When I returned home from the mortuary, I was in time to see the pale man leaving her room. Already he has moved in. He favored me with a smile whose meaning I have tried in vain to decipher. I cannot but believe that he meant it to have some significance. He acted as if there were between us some secret that I would failed to appreciate. But then, perhaps his smile was meaningless after all, and only ambiguous by chance, like that of the Mona Lisa. My man of mystery now resides in number 207, and I am not the least surprised. I would have been astonished if he had not made his scheduled move. I have almost given up trying to understand his eccentric conduct. I do not know a single thing more about him than I knew the day he arrived. I wonder whence he came. There is something indefinably foreign about his manner. I am curious to hear his voice. I like to imagine that he speaks the exotic tongue of some faraway country. If only I could somehow inveigle him into conversation. I wish that I were possessed of the glib assurance of a college boy who can address himself to the most distinguished celebrity without batting an eye. It is no wonder that I am only an assistant professor. I am worried. This morning I awoke to find myself lying prone upon the floor. I was fully clothed. I must have fallen there, exhausted, after I returned to my room last night. I wonder if my condition is more serious than I suspected. Until now I have been inclined to discount the fears of those who have pulled a long face about me. For the first time, I recall the prolonged handclasp of the president when he bade me goodbye from the university. Obviously, he never expected to see me alive again. Of course, I am not that unwell. Nevertheless, I must be more careful. Thank heaven I have no dependents to worry about. I have not even a wife, for I was never willing to exchange the loneliness of a bachelor for the loneliness of a husband. I can say in all sincerity that the prospect of death does not frighten me. Speculation about life beyond the grave has always bored me. Whatever it is or is not, I'll try to get along. Oh, I have been so preoccupied about the sudden turn of my own affairs that I have neglected to make note of a most extraordinary incident. The pale man has done an astounding thing. He has skipped three rooms and moved all the way to number 203. We are now very close neighbors. We shall meet oftener, and my chances for making his acquaintance are now greater. I have confined myself to my bed during the last few days, and have had my food brought to me. I even called a local doctor, whom I suspect to be a quack. He looked me over with professional indifference and told me not to leave my room. For some reason, he does not want me to climb stairs. For this bit of information, he received a ten-dollar bill, which, as I directed him, he fished out of my coat pocket. A pickpocket could not have done it better. He had not been gone long when I was visited by the room clerk. That worthy suggested with a great show of kindly concern that I use the facilities of the local hospital. 
It was so modern and all that. With more firmness than I have been able to muster in a long time, I gave him to understand that I intended to remain where I am. Frowning sullenly, he stiffly retired. The doctor must have paused long enough downstairs to tell him a pretty story. It is obvious that he is afraid I shall die in his best room. Last night, when I tottered down the hall, the door of number 202 was ajar. Without thinking, I looked inside. The pale man sat in a rocking chair, idly smoking a cigarette. He looked up into my eyes and smiled that peculiar, ambiguous smile that has so deeply puzzled me. I moved on down the corridor, not so much mystified as annoyed. The whole mystery of the man's conduct is beginning to irk me. It is all so inane, so utterly lacking in motive. I feel that I shall never meet the pale man, but at least I am going to learn his identity. Tomorrow I shall ask for the room clerk and deliberately interrogate him. I know now. I know the identity of the pale man, and I know the meaning of his smile. Early this afternoon, I summoned the room clerk to my bedside. Please tell me, I asked abruptly, who is the man in 202? The clerk stared wearily and uncomprehendingly. You must be mistaken. That room is unoccupied. Oh, but it is, I snapped in irritation. I myself saw the man there only two nights ago. He is a tall, handsome fellow with dark eyes and hair. He is unusually pale. He checked in the day that I arrived. The hotel man regarded me dubiously as if I were trying to impose upon him. But I assure you there is no such person in the house. As for his checking in when you did, you were the only guest we registered that day. What? Why, I've seen him twenty times. First he had number 212 at the end of the corridor, then he kept moving toward the front. Now he's next door, number 202. The room clerk threw up his hands. You're crazy, he exclaimed, and I saw that he meant what he said. I shut up at once and dismissed him. After he had gone, I heard him rattling the knob of the pale man's door. There is no doubt that he believes the room to be empty. Thus it is that I can now understand the events of the past few weeks. I now comprehend the significance of the death in number 207. I even feel partly responsible for the old lady's passing. After all, I brought the pale man with me. But it was not I who fixed his path. Why he chose to approach me room after room through the length of this dreary hotel. Why his path crossed the threshold of the woman in number 207. Those mysteries I cannot explain. I suppose I should have guessed his identity when he skipped three rooms the night I fell unconscious upon the floor. In a single night of triumph he advanced until he was almost to my door. You'll be coming, by and by, to inhabit this room, his ultimate goal. When he comes, I shall at least be able to return his smile of grim recognition. Meanwhile, I have only to wait beyond my bolted door.
The Phantom Coach by Amelia Edwards The circumstances I am about to relate to you have truth to recommend them. They happened to myself, and my recollection of them is as vivid as if they had taken place only yesterday. Twenty years, however, have gone by since that night. During those twenty years I have told the story to but one other person. I tell it now with a reluctance which I find difficult to overcome. All I entreat, meanwhile, is that you will abstain from forcing your own conclusions upon me. I want nothing explained away. I desire no arguments. My mind on this subject is quite made up, and, having the testimony of my own senses to rely upon, I prefer to abide by it. Well, it was just twenty years ago, and within a day or two of the end of the grouse season. I had been out all day with my gun, and had had no sport to speak of. The wind was due east. The month, December. The place, a bleak, wide moor in the far north of England. And I had lost my way. It was not a pleasant place in which to lose one's way, with the first feathery flakes of a coming snowstorm just fluttering down upon the heather, and the leaden evening closing in all around. I shaded my eyes with my hand, and stared anxiously into the gathering darkness, where the purple moorland melted into a range of low hills some ten or twelve miles distant. Not the faintest smoke wreath, not the tiniest cultivated patch, or fence, or sheep track, met my eyes in any direction. There was nothing for it but to walk on, and take my chance of finding what shelter I could by the way. So I shouldered my gun again and pushed wearily forward, for I had been on foot since an hour after daybreak, and eaten nothing since breakfast. Meanwhile the snow began to come down with ominous steadiness, and the wind fell. After this the cold became more intense, and the night came rapidly up. As for me, my prospects darkened with the darkening sky, and my heart grew heavy as I thought how my young wife was already watching for me through the window of our little inn parlor, and thought of all the suffering in store for her throughout this weary night. We had been married four months, and having spent our autumn in the highlands, we were now lodging in a remote little village situated just on the verge of the great English moorlands. We were very much in love, and of course, very happy. This morning when we parted, she had implored me to return before dusk, and I had promised her that I would. What would I not have given to have kept my word? Even now, weary as I was, I felt that with a supper, an hour's rest, and a guide, I might still get back to her before midnight, if only guide and shelter could be found. And all this time the snow fell and the night thickened. I stopped and shouted every now and then, but my shouts seemed only to make the silence deeper. Then a vague sense of uneasiness came upon me and I began to remember stories of travelers who had walked on and on in the falling snow until, wearied out, they were fain to lie down and sleep their lives away. Would it be possible, I asked myself, to keep on thus through all the dark night? Would there not come a time when my limbs must fail and my resolution give way? When I, too, must sleep the sleep of death? Death! I shuddered. How hard to die just now when life lay so bright before me. How hard for my darling, whose whole loving heart! But that thought was not to be borne. To banish it, I shouted again, louder and longer, and then listened eagerly. Was my shout answered, or did I only fancy that I heard a far-off cry? I hallowed again, and again the echo followed. Then a wavering speck of light came suddenly out of the dark, shifting, disappearing, growing momentarily nearer and brighter. Running towards it at full speed, I found myself, to my great joy, face to face with an old man and a lantern. Thank goodness, was the exclamation that burst involuntarily from my lips. Blinking and frowning, he lifted his lantern and peered into my face. What for? growled he, sulkily. Well, 
For you, I began to fear I should be lost in the snow. Eh, then folks do get cast away hereabouts from time to time. And what's to hinder you from being cast away likewise if the Lord's so minded? If the Lord is so minded that you and I should be lost together, friend, we must submit, I replied. But I don't mean to be lost without you. How far am I now from Dwolding? A good twenty mile, more or less. And the nearest village? The nearest village is Wyke, and that's twelve mile to the other side. Well, where do you live, then? Out yonder, said he, with a vague jerk of the lantern. You're going home, I presume. Maybe I am. Then I'm going with you. The old man shook his head and rubbed his nose reflectively with the handle of the lantern. It ain't a no use, growled he. He ought to let you in, not he. Well, we'll see about that, I replied briskly. Who is he? The master. Who is the master? That's not to you, was the unceremonious reply. Well, well, you lead the way, and I'll engage that the master shall give me shelter and a supper tonight. Eh, you can try him muttered my reluctant guide, and still shaking his head, he hobbled, gnome-like, away through the falling snow. A large mass loomed up presently out of the darkness, and a huge dog rushed out, barking furiously. Is this the house? I asked. Aye, it is the house. Down bay! And he fumbled in his pocket for the key. I drew up close behind him, prepared to lose no chance of entrance, and saw in the little circle of light shed by the lantern that the door was heavily studded with iron nails, like the door of a prison. In another minute he had turned the key and I had pushed past him into the house. Once inside I looked round with curiosity and found myself in a great raftered hall, which served apparently a variety of uses. One end was piled to the roof with corn, like a barn. The other was stored with flour sacks, agricultural implements, casks, and all kinds of miscellaneous lumber, while from the beams overhead hung rows of hams, flitches, and bunches of dried herbs for winter use. In the center of the floor stood some huge object gauntly dressed in a dingy wrapping cloth and reaching halfway to the rafters. Lifting a corner of this cloth I saw to my surprise a telescope of very considerable size mounted on a rude movable platform with four small wheels. The tube was made of painted wood bound round with bands of metal rudely fashioned. The speculum, so far as I could estimate its size in the dim light, measured at least fifteen inches in diameter. While I was yet examining the instrument and asking myself whether it was not the work of some self-taught optician, a bell rang sharply. "'That's for you,' said my guide, with a malicious grin. "'Yonder is his room.' He pointed to a low black door at the opposite side of the hall. I crossed over, rapped somewhat loudly, and went in, without waiting for an invitation. A huge white-haired old man rose from a table covered with books and papers and confronted me sternly. "'Who are you?' said he. How came you here? What do you want? James Murray, barrister at law, on foot across the moor, meat, drink, and sleep. He bent his bushy brows into a portentous frown. Mine is not a house of entertainment, he said haughtily. Jacob, how dare you admit this stranger? I didn't admit him, grumbled the old man. He followed me over the moor and shouldered his way in before me. I'm no match for six foot two. And pray, sir, by what right have you forced an entrance into my house? The same by which I should have clung to your boat if I were drowning. The right of self-preservation. Self-preservation? There's an inch of snow on the ground already, I replied briefly, and it would be deep enough to cover my body before daybreak. He strode to the window, pulled aside a heavy black curtain, and looked out. It is true, he said. You can stay if you choose till morning. Jacob, serve the supper. 
With this he waved me to a seat, resumed his own, and became at once absorbed in the studies from which I had disturbed him. I placed my gun in a corner, drew a chair to the hearth, and examined my quarters at leisure. Smaller and less incongruous in its arrangements than the hall, this room contained nevertheless much to awaken my curiosity. The floor was carpetless. The whitewashed walls were in parts scrawled over with strange diagrams, and in others covered with shelves crowded with philosophical instruments, the uses of many of which were unknown to me. On one side of the fireplace stood a bookcase filled with dingy folios, on the other a small organ, fantastically decorated with painted carvings of medieval saints and devils. Through the half-open door of the cupboard at the further end of the room, I saw a long array of geological specimens, surgical preparations, crucibles, retorts, and jars of chemicals, while on the mantel-shelf beside me, amid a number of small objects, stood a model of the solar system, a small galvanic battery, and a microscope. Every chair had its burden. Every corner was heaped high with books. The very floor was littered over with maps, casts, papers, tracings, and learned lumber of all conceivable kinds. I stared about me with an amazement increased by every fresh object upon which my eyes chanced to rest. So strange a room I had never seen, yet seemed stranger still, to find such a room in a lone farmhouse amid those wild and solitary moors. Over and over again I looked from my host to his surroundings, and from his surroundings back to my host, asking myself who and what he could be. His head was singularly fine, but it was more the head of a poet than of a philosopher. Broad in the temples, prominent over the eyes, and clothed with a rough profusion of perfectly white hair, it had all the ideality and much of the ruggedness that characterizes the head of Louis von Beethoven. There were the same deep lines about the mouth, and the same stern furrows in the brow. There was the same concentration of expression. While I was yet observing him, the door opened, and Jacob brought in the supper. His master then closed the book, rose, and with more courtesy of manner than he had yet shown, invited me to the table. A dish of ham and eggs, a loaf of brown bread, and a bottle of admirable sherry were placed before me. "'I have but the homeliest farmhouse fare to offer you, sir,' said my entertainer. "'Your appetite, I trust, will make up for the deficiencies of our larder.' I had already fallen upon the viands, and now protested with the enthusiasm of a starving sportsman that I had never eaten anything so delicious. He bowed stiffly and sat down to his own supper, which consisted primitively of a jug of milk and a basin of porridge. We ate in silence, and when we had done, Jacob removed the tray. I then drew my chair back to the fireside. My host, somewhat to my surprise, did the same, and turning abruptly towards me, said, "'Sir!' I have lived here in strict retirement for three and twenty years. During that time I have not seen as many strange faces, and I have not read a single newspaper. You are the first stranger who has crossed my threshold for more than four years. Will you favor me with a few words of information respecting the outer world from which I have parted company so long? Pray interrogate me, I replied. I am heartily at your service. He bent his head in acknowledgment, leaned forward, and, with his elbows resting on his knees and chin supported in the palms of his hands, stared fixedly into the fire, and proceeded to question me. His inquiries related chiefly to scientific matters, with the later progress of which, as applied to the practical purposes of life, he was almost wholly unacquainted. No student of science myself, I replied as well as my slight information permitted, but the task was far from easy, and I was much relieved when, passing from interrogation to discussion, he began pouring forth his own conclusions upon the facts which I had been attempting to replace before him. 
He talked, and I listened spellbound. He talked till I believe he almost forgot my presence, and only thought aloud. I had never heard anything like it then, and I have never heard anything like it since. Familiar with all systems of all philosophies, subtle in analysis, bold in generalization, he poured forth his thoughts in an uninterrupted stream, and, still leaning forward in the same moody attitude with his eyes fixed upon the fire, wandered from topic to topic, from speculation to speculation, like an inspired dreamer. From practical science to mental philosophy, from electricity in the wire to electricity in the nerve, from Watts to Mesmer, from Mesmer to Reichenbach, from Reichenbach to Swedenborg, Spinoza, Condiac, Descartes, Berkeley, Aristotle, Plato, and the Magi, and the mystics of the East, were transitions which, however bewildering in their variety and scope, seemed easy and harmonious upon his lips as sequences in music. By and by, I forget now what link of conjecture or illustration, he passed on to that field which lies beyond the boundary line of even conjectural philosophy, and reaches no man knows whither. He spoke of the soul and its aspirations, of the spirit and its powers, of second sight, prophecy, of those phenomena which, under the names of ghosts, specters, and supernatural appearances, have been denied by the skeptics and attested by the credulous of all ages. The world, he said, grows hourly more and more skeptical of all that lies beyond its own narrow radius, and our men of science foster the fatal tendency. They condemn as fable all that resists experiment. They reject as false all that cannot be brought to the test of the laboratory or the dissecting room. Against what superstition have they waged so long and obstinate a war as against the belief in apparitions? And yet, what superstition has maintained its hold upon the minds of men so long and so firmly? Show me any fact in physics, in history, in archaeology, which is supported by testimony so wide and so various, attested by all races of men, in all ages and in all climates, by the soberest sages of antiquity, by the rudest savage of today, by the Christian, the pagan, the pantheist, the materialist. This phenomenon is treated as a nursery tale by the philosophers of our century. Circumstantial evidence weighs with them as a feather in the balance. The comparison of causes with effects, however valuable in physical science, is put aside as worthless and unreliable. The evidence of competent witnesses, however conclusive in a court of justice, counts for nothing. He who pauses before he pronounces is condemned as a trifler. He who believes is a dreamer or a fool. He spoke with bitterness, and having said thus, relapsed for some minutes into silence. Presently he raised his head from his hands, and added with an altered voice and manner, I, sir, paused, investigated, believed, and was not ashamed to state my convictions to the world. I, too, was branded as a visionary, held up to ridicule by my contemporaries, and hooted from the field of science in which I had labored with honor during all the best years of my life. These things happened just three and twenty years ago. Since then, I have lived as you see me living now, and the world has forgotten me, as I have forgotten the world. You have my history. 
It is a very sad one, I murmured, scarcely knowing what to answer. It is a very common one, he replied. I have only suffered for the truth, as many a better and wiser man has suffered before me. He rose as if desirous of ending the conversation, and went over to the window. It has ceased snowing, he observed, as he dropped the curtain and came back to the fireside. Ceased, I exclaimed, starting eagerly to my feet. Oh, if it were only possible, but no, it is hopeless. Even if I could find my way across the moor, I could not walk twenty miles tonight. Walk twenty miles tonight? repeated my host. What are you thinking of? Of my wife, I replied impatiently. Of my young wife, who does not know that I have lost my way, and who is at this moment breaking her heart with suspense and terror. Where is she? At Dwalding, twenty miles away. At Dwalding, he echoed thoughtfully. Yes, the distance, it is true, is twenty miles, but are you so very anxious to save the next six or eight hours? So very, very anxious that I would give ten guineas at this moment for a guide and a horse. Your wish can be gratified at a less costly rate, he said, smiling. The night mail from the north, which changes horses at Dwelding, passes within five miles of this spot, and will be due at a certain crossroad in about an hour and a quarter. If Jacob were to go with you across the moor, and put you in the old coach road, you could find your way, I suppose, to where it joins the new one. Easily. Uh, gladly. He smiled again, rang the bell, and gave the old servant his directions, and, taking a bottle of whiskey and a wine glass from the cupboard in which he kept his chemicals, he said, The snow lies deep, and it will be difficult walking tonight on the moor. A glass of Uskbog before you start. I would have declined the spirit, but he pressed it on me, and I drank it. It went down my throat like liquid flame, and almost took my breath away. It is strong, he said, but will help keep out the cold. And now you have no moments to spare. Good night. I thanked him for his hospitality, and would have shaken hands, but that he had turned away before I could finish my sentence. In another minute I had traversed the hall. Jacob had locked the outer door behind me, and we were out on the wide white moor. Although the wind had fallen, it was still bitterly cold. Not a star glimmered in the black vault overhead. Not a sound, save the rapid crunching of snow beneath our feet, disturbed the heavy stillness of the night. Jacob, not too well pleased with his mission, shambled on before in sullen silence, his lantern in his hand and his shadow at his feet. I followed with my gun over my shoulder, as little inclined for conversation as himself. My thoughts were full of my late host. His voice yet rang in my ears. His eloquence yet held my imagination captive. I remember to this day with surprise how my overexcited brain retained those whole sentences and parts of sentences, troops of brilliant images and fragments of splendid reasoning, in the very words in which he had uttered them. Musing thus over what I had heard and striving to recall a lost link here and there, I strode on at the heels of my guide, absorbed and unobservant. Presently, at the end, as it seemed to me, of only a few minutes, he came to a sudden halt and said, "'Yon's your road. Keep the stone fence to your right hand, and you can't fail the way.' "'This, then, is the old coach road. Aye, tis the old coach road. And how far do I go before I reach the crossroads?' Uh, "'Nigh upon three mile.' I pulled out my purse, and he became more communicative. "'The road's a fair road enough,' said he. "'For foot passengers.' but twas over steep and narrow for the northern traffic. You'll mind where the parapet's broken away, close again the signpost. It's never been mended since the accident. What accident? 
the nightmare pitched right over into the valley below, a good fifty feet and more, just at the worst bit of road in the whole county. Horrible. How many lives were lost? All. Four were found dead, and the other two died the next morning. How long since this happened? Just nine years. Near the signpost, you say. I will bear it in mind. Good night. Good night, sir, and thank you. Jacob pocketed his half-crown, made a faint pretense of touching his hat, and trudged back by the way he had come. I watched the light of his lantern till it quite disappeared, then turned to pursue my way alone. This was no longer a matter of the slightest difficulty, for despite the dead darkness overhead, the line of stone fence showed distinctly enough against the pale gleam of the snow. How silent it seemed now with only my footsteps to listen to. How silent and how solitary. A strange, disagreeable sense of loneliness stole over me. I walked faster. I hummed a fragment of tune. I cast up enormous sums in my head and accumulated them at compound interest. I did my best, in short, to forget the startling speculations to which I had just been listening, and, to some extent, I succeeded. Meanwhile, the night air seemed to become colder and colder, and though I walked fast, I found it impossible to keep myself warm. My feet were like ice. I lost sensation in my hands and grasped my gun mechanically. I even breathed with difficulty, as though, instead of traversing a quiet north country highway, I were scaling the uppermost heights of some gigantic alp. This last symptom became presently so distressing that I was forced to stop for a few minutes and lean against the stone fence. As I did so, I chanced to look back up the road, and there, to my infinite relief, I saw a distant point of light, like the gleam of an approaching lantern. I at first concluded that Jacob had retraced his steps and followed me, but even as the conjecture presented itself, a second light flashed into sight, a light evidently parallel with the first and approaching at the same rate of motion. It needed no second thought to show me that these must be the carriage lamps of some private vehicle, though it seemed strange that any private vehicle should take a road professedly disused and dangerous. There could be no doubt, however, of the fact, for the lamps grew larger and brighter every moment, and I even fancied I could already see the dark outline of the carriage between them. It was coming up very fast and quite noiselessly, the snow being nearly a foot deep under the wheels. And now the body of the vehicle became distinctly visible behind the lamps. It looked strangely lofty. A sudden suspicion flashed upon me. Was it possible that I had passed the crossroads in the dark without observing the signpost? And could this be the very coach which I had come to meet? No need to ask myself that question a second time, for here it came, round the bend of the road, guard and driver, one outside passenger, and four steaming greys, all wrapped in a soft haze of light, through which the lamps blazed out like a pair of fiery meteors. I jumped forward, waved my hat, and shouted. The mail came down at full speed and passed me. For a moment I feared that I had not been seen or heard, but it was only for a moment. The coachman pulled up, the guard muffled to the eyes in capes and comforters, and apparently sound asleep in the rumble, neither answered my hail nor made the slightest effort to dismount. The outside passenger did not even turn his head. I opened the door myself and looked in. There were but three travelers inside, so I stepped in, shut the door, slipped into the vacant corner, and congratulated myself on my good fortune. The atmosphere of the coach seemed, if possible, colder than that of the outer air, and was pervaded by a singularly damp and disagreeable smell. I looked round at my fellow passengers. They were all three men, and all silent. They did not seem to be asleep, but each leaned back in his corner of the vehicle as if absorbed in his own reflections. I attempted to open a conversation. How intensely cold it is tonight, I said, addressing my opposite neighbor. 
He lifted his head, looked at me, but made no reply. The winter, I added, seems to have begun in earnest. Although the corner in which he sat was so dim that I could distinguish none of his features very clearly, I saw that his eyes were still turned full upon me, and yet he answered never a word. At any other time I should have felt, and perhaps expressed, some annoyance, but at the moment I felt too ill to do either. The icy coldness of the night air had struck a chill to my very marrow, and the strange smell inside the coach was affecting me with an intolerable nausea. I shivered from head to foot, and, turning to my left-hand neighbor, asked if he had any objection to open a window. He neither spoke nor stirred. I repeated the question somewhat more loudly, but with the same result. Then I lost patience and let the sash down. As I did so, the leather strap broke in my hand, and I observed that the glass was covered with a thick coat of mildew, the accumulation apparently of years. My attention being thus drawn to the condition of the coach, I examined it more narrowly, and saw by the uncertain light of the outer lamps that it was in the last stage of dilapidation. Every part of it was not only out of repair, but in a condition of decay. The sashes splintered at a touch. The leather fittings were crusted over with mold and literally rotting from the woodwork. The floor was almost breaking away beneath my feet. The whole machine, in short, was foul with damp and had evidently been dragged from some outhouse in which it had been moldering away for years to do another day or two of duty on the road. I turned to the third passenger, whom I had not yet addressed, and I hazarded one more remark. "'This coach,' I said, "'is in deplorable condition. The regular mail, I suppose, is under repair?' He moved his head slowly and looked me in the face, without speaking a word. "'I shall never forget that look while I live. I turned cold at heart under it. I turn cold at heart even now, when I recall it. His eyes glowed with a fiery, unnatural luster. His face was livid as the face of a corpse. His bloodless lips were drawn back as if in the agony of death, and showed the gleaming teeth between. The words that I was about to utter died upon my lips, and a strange horror, a dreadful horror, came upon me. My sight had by this time become used to the gloom of the coach, and I could see with tolerable distinctness. I turned to my opposite neighbor. He too was looking at me, with the same startling pallor in his face and the same stony glitter in his eyes. I passed my hand across my brow. I turned to the passenger on the seat beside my own and saw, oh heaven, how shall I describe what I saw? I saw that he was no living man that none of them were living men like myself. A pale, phosphorescent light, the light of putrefaction, played upon their awful faces, upon their hair, dank with the dews of the grave, upon their clothes, earth-stained and dropping to pieces upon their hands, which were as the hands of corpses long buried. Only their eyes, their terrible eyes, were living, and those eyes were all turned menacingly upon me. A shriek of terror, a wild, unintelligible cry for help and mercy burst from my lips as I flung myself against the door and strove in vain to open it. In that single instant, brief and vivid as a landscape beheld in the flash of a summer lightning, I saw the moon shining down through a rift of stormy cloud, the ghastly signpost rearing its warning finger by the wayside, the broken parapet, the plunging horses, the black gulf below. Then the coach reeled like a ship at sea. Then came a mighty crash, a sense of crushing pain, and then darkness.
It seemed as if years had gone by when I awoke one morning from a deep sleep and found my wife watching by my bedside. I will pass over that scene that ensued and give you in half a dozen words the tale she told me with tears of thanksgiving. I had fallen over a precipice, close against the junction of the old coach road and the new, and had only been saved from certain death by lighting upon a deep snowdrift that had accumulated at the foot of the rock beneath. In this snowdrift I was discovered at daybreak by a couple of shepherds, who carried me to the nearest shelter, and brought a surgeon to my aid. The surgeon found me in a state of raving delirium, with a broken arm and a compound fracture of the skull. The letters in my pocketbook showed my name and address. My wife was summoned to nurse me, and, thanks to youth and a fine constitution, I came out of danger at last. The place of my fall, I need scarcely say, was precisely that at which a frightful accident had happened to the North Mail nine years before. I never told my wife the fearful events which I have just related to you. I told the surgeon who attended me, but he treated the whole adventure as a mere dream born of the fever in my brain. We discussed the question over and over again, until we found that we could discuss it with temper no longer, and then we dropped it. Others may form what conclusions they please. I know that twenty years ago, I was the fourth inside passenger in that phantom coach. The moral of this last story is pretty apparent to me, my friends. Even if you are desperate for a ride, when you open the door to your cab and it's cold and smells like death, maybe take the next one. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I would love it if you spread the word and leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that in to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter via the same handle, at syypodcast. You can also just use those methods just to say hello. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Next week, as Spooky Story Month continues, I've got no less than four original stories for you. We'll get another look at death, we'll do some manual labor, and we'll even make a visit under the sea. You won't want to miss this one. Until then, this has been episode 25 of Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.